I, I think something fascinating happens the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, and I'm not talking about Black Friday, although I think that's kind of fascinating as well. Uh, what, what I'm talking about is there is this very abrupt shift in our schedule. I, I think it's the most abrupt shift that happens throughout the entire year, where like Thanksgiving ends and immediately our eyes are fixed on Christmas. I mean, I, I think like the, the turkey and pie is barely digested and already we're getting a craving for Christmas cookies, right? Like already longing for those again. And we take down the fall decorations, and all of a sudden we've got Christmas trees and lights and tinsel and stockings and, and maybe a creepy elf on the shelf somewhere uh, if you take part in that. Like Christmas music goes from being this anathema that we can't listen to to being the only thing that we're all of a sudden allowed to listen to. Uh, and all of a sudden Home Alone and Elf are on every single channel of our TVs almost every single moment of the day. Like, there is just this shift at Thanksgiving where it ends, and now we're laser-focused on Christmas. And that's part of why we do an Advent series at church, B because we want to fix our eyes not simply on the traditions and the lights and the celebrations and, and everything that is fun about Christmas, but also on what lies behind all of those things, that our God has come to dwell with us and rescue us. And so for our Advent series this year, we're, we're going to jump back into the book of Zechariah because there's also this abrupt shift that happens in the book of Zechariah, where, where in chapters one through six, we've got these eight visions that we work through, where, where Zechariah is offering hope, or God is offering hope through Zechariah to the returned exiles as they rebuild the temple. And, and then in chapters seven through eight, which we skipped over, Zechariah is dealing with these questions of fasting and how do people worship now that the temple is rebuilt after it was gone for so long. And then we get to chapters 9 through 14 and this, there's this very abrupt shift where Zechariah is no longer dealing with things of the present, but now he's looking forward, looking ahead to the coming king that God is going to send for his people. And in Zechariah 9 through 14, we get glimpses of this king and of what he's going to be like. We find especially that he will be a warrior king, a shepherd king, and an exalted king. And so we're going to look at those three descriptions of Jesus over the next three weeks as we prepare for Christmas, celebrating his first coming and what he's done and anticipating his return as well. Uh, and we'll start with Zechariah's description of this warrior king in Zechariah chapter 9. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Zechariah chapter 9 this morning. That's where we're going to be at. I, I grew up as uh, the youngest of three boys in my household. And so as you can likely ima imagine, especially if you grew up with brothers, uh, there were lots of competitions and wrestling and fighting at times. Uh, and uh, as the youngest of the three I'm fairly certain I usually came out on the bottom of those fights, rarely came out on the winning side. But the one that I do remember, I don't remember many of the fights, wrestling matches, but the one I do remember clearly, there wasn't an obvious winner or loser. Uh, my oldest brother and I were kind of wrestling in our family room. I don't remember why, uh, but we were wrestling and grappling, and all of a sudden we banged heads kind of at the corner of our heads. 
And, and immediately both of us proceeded to find some place to, to lie, lie down. We were a little, a little bit woozy. Only to a couple minutes later, had my mom walk into the room and kind of start freaking out because we were both bleeding from our foreheads, it turns out, right? Now, I think I was the winner of that fight because my brother needed medical attention and I didn't, uh, but as the youngest, you just kind of learn to get whatever wins you can, so that's why I chalk that up for me. The, the reality is whenever there's a fight, there's usually a clear winner and a clear loser, and the other reality is that whenever there's a fight, usually you're fighting for something. Fighting for something. One of the storylines we can find written throughout the Bible is the story of a great battle. A battle in which God is fighting to defeat his enemies and restore and rescue to himself a people to enjoy him forever. We, we might be prone to forget it, or misunderstand it at times, but the Bible is clear that our God is a warrior, is a warrior who fights against his enemies and fights for his people. In fact, God's very response to sin, Satan, and death from the start in the Bible is a declaration of war. If we read in Genesis 3.15, the chapter where sin enters this world and messes up everything, Part of God's response to the serpent is to say, I will put enmity, hatred, anger between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says to the serpent, there's going to be war and I'm going to send an offspring who you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to smash your head. This is an act of war, a declaration of war. And when we get to Zechariah chapter 9, we find God speaking of the coming warrior king who will fight for his people. The, the big idea for this morning, simply as we look at this chapter, is God has given us a king who fights for us. And so we're going to kind of read this morning in chunks, uh, starting with the first eight verses of this chapter, and then we'll work our way through it throughout this morning. But let me pray for us before we start. Father, we come to you uh, always in desperate need of your help. Uh, we want to hear from you. We want to worship you. We want to have eyes and minds and hearts that are fixated on Christ. Not just at Christmas, but, but every single day of the year. And we know that our eyes and minds and hearts are prone to wonder. And so we pray this morning that you would again fixate our eyes, hearts, and minds on Christ on who he is as our king, and then we, we might worship him, celebrating him and his first coming and anticipating him in his second coming. We pray this in his name. Amen. Starting in verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 9. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, 
and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor, oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. In these verses, God is laying out a battle plan in many ways. We see him marching from the north to the south, which is the traditional ways that Israel's enemies often came down from, especially the great empires of these days like Assyria and Babylon and Persia. And in the image, we see as God marches, he's defeating some of Israel's traditional enemies, especially focusing in on Syria, Damascus, and Tyre, and the Philistines. These are the enemies of Israel that were subjected to them in the days of David and Solomon, kind of the glory days of Israel's reign. And what's interesting is that if we look at this time right now where Zechariah is writing, these enemies don't really pose a threat to Israel. It's the Persians and the great empires of the day that are posing the threats, which leads some people to say, okay, well, this must be God predicting uh, Alexander the Great and the Greece army as they fight against Persia and march down the, the Mediterranean Sea, kind of defeating all these nations. I, I think that, that could be the case, but, but I'm not sure that that's obvious that that's the case. Because another thing it could be is it could be Zechariah harnessing Israel's history, what's happened in the days of David, in order to portray the future and what's going to happen in the days of a coming king. Either way, Whichever way you see it, the truth contained in these verses is this. God fights for his people and against their enemies. We have a God who fights for his people and against their enemies. This is a common theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. And so in Exodus 15.3, right after the Egyptian army is defeated and the Israelites are delivered through the Red Sea, Moses composes a song and in the song he says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then as the Israelites prepare to enter the promised land, we find Moses telling them again in Deuteronomy 1.30, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And then soon after Zechariah's writing, when Nehemiah comes on the picture, and he's helping the Israelites rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he tells to them, as their enemies threaten them, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. As we look to Christmas, we should remember that Christ's coming is one of the greatest examples of our God fighting for us and against his enemies. That's why when another Zechariah comes along, the father of John the Baptist, at his birth, and sings these words, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the 
hand of all who hate us. So we find that Jesus is the warrior promised in Genesis 3.15, who doesn't come to defeat the, the Philistines and the Syrians, but who comes to conquer sin, Satan, and death. The coming of Jesus at Christmas is forever a reminder that our God fights for his people and against their enemies. Now, why does that matter for tomorrow? Why does that matter for the next day in your life? Why does that matter for Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and on and on? Why, why does this matter? That's, that's great for us to talk about. Why does it matter? Because there's this truth that we can cling to, that we never fight alone, that we never fight alone, because we're still daily engaged in battles today. We, we know that our battles are not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, like Ephesians 6 tells us, that we're engaged in battles against Satan, who wants to rob us of the freedom, the peace, the hope, and the joy that Christ has won for us. And so we're engaged in battles against temptation and sin. We're engaged in battles against anxiety and fear and worry. We're engaged in battles against unbelief, not being able to believe God's great promises. We're engaged in battles against guilt and regret over sin in our lives and all sorts of other battles. And I think one of the things that can be so discouraging to us in the midst of our battles time after time again is that we end up feeling like we're fighting alone. We end up feeling like we're all alone in the midst of whatever battle it is we've got to fight time and time again. But if your faith is in Christ, you never fight alone. God stands in front of you fighting for you. And if we can believe this and picture this and know this, it makes a massive difference in our battles. It doesn't make them disappear or go away but it makes a massive difference for us as we fight. I think of it this way. We might just picture it in this image. Imagine with me a 150-pound running back who is on his side of the line in a football game, and the only other person on his side is a quarterback who's going to hand him the ball. And on the other side of the line, there stands four 300-pound defensive linemen. That running back knows I'm about to get popped every single time, right? And if I'm that running back, I'm about to throw in the towel because it's hopeless. There's no way. But, but imagine then for a moment, insert into that picture, five 350-pound offensive linemen. All of a sudden, the running back knows I, I still might get tackled, but I've got five guys on my side who are going to go to war for me, going to fight for me, going to press forward for me. And all of a sudden, I know my role is to get behind them and run in their tracks. In our battles, the enemies we fight can seem so big and terrifying. And if we start to believe we're all alone, we're far more likely just to throw in the towel and say, I can't do it. I can't keep fighting here. But when we step back and see we have an awesome, big, powerful God who is fighting for us, then we're reminded, man, I've got to get behind him, trust him, and follow him in the midst of this. I mean, the, the next time that battle, a battle is raging in your life, that one that comes up again and again and again, just stop for a moment and picture God fighting for you. 
if it helps, picture a 350-pound lineman in your way. That's a bad image because God is far greater than a 350-pound lineman. But if it helps, picture that. God is with the, you, fighting for you in the midst of whatever you are fighting. Zechariah 9, 1 through 8 is meant to remind us of this truth. The God who fights for us is greater than the enemies who fight against us. And in Zechariah 9, 9 then, God announces he's going to send a king who's going to fight for his people. Now pause right here. This is what makes the second part of Zechariah 9.9 all the more shocking, as we're going to see. Picture it this way with me. Verses 1 through 8 in Zechariah chapter 9 are sort of like a hype video for God's warrior king. Sort of like a hype video for God's coming king. And so, and so if you want to, picture those words being read in Brian Dawkins' voice, right? I will take away the blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. I know, I've got a terrible Brian Dawkins accent, right? Don't, don't image my voice. But do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like that, you, if you've ever been to a professional sports game, you know there's that hype video before the home team runs out onto the field, right? And there's music in the background. It's pumping everyone up right? And they've got the best players on the team, and they've got pictures or videos of their best plays, and everyone's getting excited, and it ends with something along the lines of, get up and make some noise for your, whoever your home team is. Picture verses one through eight in this chapter as a hype video for God's coming king. He's going to defeat your enemies, Israel. He's going to guard you and protect you, And then verse 9 is the equivalent of get up and make some noise, right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And so if I'm an Israelite, I'm expecting, all right, he's got armor on. He's got a sword. Let's go. And then we hear righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, it it looks forward to Christ entering Jerusalem right before he dies, but it's also this image of him coming in humility and weakness to save us. Like, this is the equivalent of, of seeing a hype video played for a professional sports team and then having that followed with a peewee team running out onto the field. Say, wait, what? And when we stop and think about Christmas, it should make us say, wait, what? Wait, wait, what? God's battle plan is to send a humble king who dies on a cross? God's greatest act of war begins with a baby born in a dirty manger in a shed in a podunk town? What? See, this forever reminds us God wins victory through what appears weak. This is the God we serve, and it's the God we're reminded of at Christmas in Christ's first coming. He loves to win battles through what appears weak to demonstrate his strength. He he delivers the Israelites from Pharaoh and the greatest army at the time through a stuttering leader like Moses. He, He overcomes Jericho through people walking around the walls and blowing trumpets. He beats a a giant named Goliath with a teenage boy with a slingshot. 
And he overcomes Satan, sin, and death with a baby who was born to die. God loves to accomplish victory through what appears weak outwardly. Here's how Matt Chandler and David Rourke say in a book that they wrote. The Son of God takes on flesh to defeat the power of sin, death, and Satan, and to rescue his people from the deadly consequences of their rebellion against their creator. Yet this warfare doesn't fit the framework of what Israel expected. It doesn't look like violence and destruction. It doesn't come through power and conquest. It comes through humility and weakness through the cross. Our God forever wins victory through what appears weak. And if we ever doubt how important humility is to God, all we need to do is look back to Christmas and see him rescuing the world and winning the greatest war through a humble, weak Savior. And so we might recognize we should not let weakness discourage us. When we feel weak and small and insignificant, it's prone to make us think and ask, could God really use me right now? Could he really use me in this situation? Could he really accomplish anything through me? Could he work through me? Could he use someone like me to impact this world and advance his kingdom and bring glory to him? And the answer to that question is always yes, because God loves to use weak, humble people who rest and trust in him for salvation and strength. Christmas is not ultimately good news for the strong, self-sufficient people who are completely put together and have it all figured out. It might be fun, but, it, but it's not ultimately good news. Christmas is really, really good news for the weak and the needy and the desperate who know I need God to be my salvation and my strength day after day after day. And we find it's through the humble life and death of Jesus that he wins the war against our greatest enemy. We can look at verses 10 through 12 to see a little bit of what this coming king is going to do. And while there's multiple things we could point out in these verses, one of the big things that comes through is that he comes to bring peace. Let's read, starting in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. He cuts off the traditional elements of war, instruments of war from Ephraim and Jerusalem. Bow, war horse, chariots. And it says he speaks peace to the nations. This is why when the angels announce his birth to the shepherds in Luke 2.14, the song they sing is what? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's why Isaiah 9.6 speaks of the coming child and says he's going to be the prince of peace. We might stop and ask though, okay, well, what does a warrior king having connection with someone who's going to come to bring peace. Well, one of the reasons that we might go to war is to reestablish a peace that's been broken, right? This coming week uh, on Wednesday, I think it is December 7th, we'll, we'll celebrate the 81st 
I think I got my numbers right there, 81st anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Right, this attack on the United States that played a big role in them entering into World War II. And, and the day after that attack, there was this declaration of war against Japan. And, and in the declaration of war, these words were written. The president is hereby authorized and directed to employ the entire naval and military forces of the United States and the resources of the government to carry on war against the imperial government of Japan and to bring the conflict to a successful termination. The goal in Jesus' coming is to end the conflict that we started. The, the goal in Jesus' coming is to restore the peace and harmony that we've wrecked in our own sin. In, in the beginning, we enjoyed perfect peace with God in a world that lived in perfect harmony, and yet we rebelled against God choosing instead to have our own way rather than trust and love and obey him. And God gives his greatest resource, holding back nothing, not even his very own son, to come and bring that conflict to a successful termination. This is why it's good news that Jesus comes to bring peace, because he comes to give us back the life that we were always meant to live, a life with peace and harmony with God and in this world. And so it's why Colossians 1.20 says about his death and, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We who were his enemies deserve to have him come and fight against us. Jesus, Jesus should have come fighting against us. And yet we find he came to bring peace and that when we trust in him, we now know that he fights forever on our side for us. That's an incredible thing about Christmas. God should have fought against us, and instead he brings peace and now fights for us. Because this peace is not simply a successful termination of conflict, but it means that God is now forever on our side. It means that we can confidently say things like Romans 8:31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That, that as we walk through this life and we face all sorts of challenges and difficulties and struggles, and we walk into an unknown future, through Christmas we know that God is now for us. We have peace with him. And we can walk confidently knowing that he's battling, fighting for us, whatever we face or whatever we walk through. And we see that Jesus not only fights for us, but he also then fights through us. Verses 13 through 15, we see God turning around and fighting through his people. It says, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. These verses are describing a victory that God now carries out through his people, forever demonstrating that God advances his kingdom and extends his victory in Christ through his people. 
I mean, I think about what we, we often say or hear people say, that we kind of have this ingrained longing that our life would count for something bigger, something more than just for ourselves. Listen, there is nothing bigger than that we might serve to advance the kingdom and victory of the greatest king the world's ever known. That is the biggest thing that our lives could ever count for. That is what God is now doing and accomplishing through his people. And we might ask, well, how does, how does he do that? I think there, there are probably multiple ways we could look at, but, but just to point out, too, that, that first, we live according to Christ's victory. We live like he's won and like he is ruling even now, even though we don't see the full results of that. Mark Dever says, we, we hope for the future rule and reign of, G, of Christ. So even now we seek to live under his rule and reign. Or Romans 6, 12 through 14 puts it like this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We seek to fight sin and reflect Jesus by his power in our homes, in our marriages, to our kids, in our jobs, with our friends, with our coworkers. And everywhere we do, God is advancing his kingdom in and through us by his power. We live according to Christ's victory, but we also then declare and boast in Christ's victory. We do this every time we speak the gospel, whether to ourselves, to our family members, to those who don't know Christ, declaring that Jesus has won and that he offers peace with God through his victory. But we also do this every time we gather to worship and celebrate the gospel as a church. One of my favorite verses, and you've heard me, I think, quote this before from up here, is Ephesians 3.10, where it talks about the church gathering together and says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Every time we gather to sing songs by faith, every time we gather to proclaim the gospel and hear the gospel by faith, we are reminding Satan, you lost. You lost both in the past and you're losing now and you are going to lose in the future. And you lost bad. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was, I'm in a fantasy football league and I was playing against Pastor Ben in this fantasy football league. And I lost bad. I think he doubled my score. I think the end score was like 160 to 80. It was an embarrassment for my team. And I came into the office that week, and, and one day I went to my mailbox, and in my mailbox was printed out on a large sheet of paper the score from our game. I, I thought it was hilarious. It was this way of reminding me, hey, Kyle, you lost bad this past week. When we gather to sing and preach and celebrate the gospel, we remind Satan, you lost bad. Every time we sing Christmas carols by faith believing they're true, Satan cringes because he remembers he's on the losing side of history. We should boast in the gospel all the time, but especially at Christmas, and remember what Christ has done for us. 
to live and declare his victory with joy. And that even as we do this, we're assured of the final results of his victory. Because Jesus assures us of the final victory. See, there's this tension at Christmas. Do you feel it yourself? I would guess you do if you stop and think about this. That at Christmas, we're celebrating Jesus winning the battle over Satan, bringing peace to us. And yet, as we look around, we struggle so many times because it doesn't feel like Jesus has won, right? Wars still rage on. Families are still torn apart by conflict. Sin still trips us up. Death continues to separate us from loved ones. Like, it can feel like we are losing and anything but victorious. We can look around and think, man, the message of Christmas sounds great, but it just doesn't match up with the realities of my life. And so we need to see that because Christ has come, the final victory is assured. We we live in this gap between his first coming and his second coming, and that gap can feel so long at times. And I think it especially feels long at times at Christmas as we're celebrating these great things and yet left waiting Whereas Christmas magnifies some of the pain and hurt and loss in our lives, we're thinking, Jesus, when are you going to come back? We're waiting and longing. And it seems like we're waiting for years. Just like the Israelites waited and longed for years for Christ to come at first. And what's interesting about the prophets like Zechariah is that they can seem to shrink the gap between Christ's first and second coming. That they at the same time describe things that will happen when he first came at Christmas and when he comes back and act as if they're almost one and the same. And so we read in verses 16 through 17, and they kind of demonstrate this blurring together, where it says, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. We we know that Christ has saved us, and yet we haven't experienced that full reality yet. These verses describe a type of flourishing that echoes back to the Garden of Eden and echoes forward to new heavens and new earth, where we're with God face-to-face in his land, enjoying the full fruits of Christ's victory. And we might ask, well, why is there so often this blurring when we read through the prophets between Christ's first coming and second coming? Why do they seem to shrink the gap that we feel right now? I think in part, it's meant to make us confident of the future. It's meant to show that Christ's first coming into this world guarantees that he will come again. This is not simply a prediction, it's a guarantee. Like Jesus' second coming is not a 40%, 50%, 60%, or even 99% prediction. It is a 100% guarantee. He is coming back, and we know that because he came once in the beginning. He will fully eradicate every enemy. He will fully save his people, and he will fully restore the world. That's not something that we simply try to Hope, maybe this will happen. It's something we hope to, knowing this is going to happen. 
He won the victory when he came the first time. He's coming back to fully accomplish that victory. And for those who are trusting in Christ to save them, we can look forward to that with full confidence and know that history ends with us on the winning side, even though it may feel like we're losing now at times. And for those who haven't trusted Christ yet, we can look back to Christmas and find Jesus going to war for you, to make peace between God and you, and offers you peace right now if you would trust in him. So we we look back to Christmas and celebrate the victory Jesus has won and look forward and anticipate the final victory of Jesus. As we look back to Christmas, we remember a God who fights for us. As we look back to Christmas, we we celebrate and enjoy the peace that we have with God now through Jesus. As we look back to Christmas, we live according to and declare and boast in Jesus' victory. And as we look back to Christmas, we confidently rest in the truth that he is coming again to fully bring about his victory. These are things we not only do when we look back to Christmas, they're things we do every single time in some ways that we celebrate communion together. What's interesting about verse 17 is that we see the people celebrating a victory with grain and wine, right? We find here this idea of when there's this great victory, we celebrate it. We get excited about it. We rejoice over it. We eat and drink and shout because a great victory has been won. And communion is a celebration meal. It's a celebration that Jesus has come in the flesh, died for us, and was raised again, accomplishing victory over sin and Satan and death. That's an incredible victory for us to celebrate. That's better than any victory your sports teams will ever accomplish. It's the greatest victory in history. And every single time we eat and drink, we pronounce and celebrate that victory but we're also left anticipating his victory in the future. Because I don't know about you, but but when I take communion and I drink just a little bit of juice and eat just a little wafer, I'm left hungering for more. And there's this idea of we are left anticipating and hungering and longing for Christ to come back again, accomplish the full victory, and for us to celebrate with him at the feast that ends history for all his people. So so we eat and drink, celebrating the victory that Christ our warrior king has won for us, but also anticipating his return and the victory he will fully and finally achieve for us. So Jesus said the night before his death, this is my body, which is given for you, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and passed it to his disciples and said, this is the cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant of my blood. Drink in remembrance of me. Jesus, we worship you and praise you. You have won the victory. You have accomplished peace with God for us. You are ruling and reigning right now. And I pray that our hearts might 
celebrate deeply what you've done for us and the victory you've accomplished, that we might walk in confidence knowing that you're fighting for us right now. But Jesus, we also long for you to come back and to finalize fully the battle, winning the great victory and bringing about full restoration, peace, and harmony to us as your people. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, come.